So this morning I want to continue with the third talk on the theme of things are not as they appear. And I'll do a brief review because a number of you weren't here of what we've done in the previous uh, two sessions. Um, This is really based on the understanding that's, um, I think, very clear when you look to the historical Buddha that there's a claim that we don't see things clearly. We don't see things optimally. That in certain ways, we see through lenses which distort our experience. And the notion of wisdom that is offered as a very important uh, aspect of our practice, the notion of wisdom is typically understood as seeing through what obscures our seeing and coming to clear seeing. And that understanding of our situation and really of our the goal of our practice is evident right there in the very name that the Buddha took for himself, which is to say that uh, uh, Buddha means someone who is awake. And the presumption is that he was uh, not awake, that in a sense he was sleeping, and we would say dreaming, prior to what he called his awakening. So the very metaphors that are very prominent suggest that our normal, habitual way of going about things in the world is connected with not seeing clearly. And the other side of that is things not appearing, not being as they appear to us. And that's what I've, that's what I've been exploring. You know, that, that understanding is there in many traditions and approaches. Some of you know the famous line in the poetry of William Blake where he says, if we could cleanse the doors of perception, everything would be as it is, infinite before our eyes, right? And, you know, it's been the goal of poets and artists, you know, think of some of the French artists, the Impressionists, they were really trying to look into the mechanisms of vision and see how, you know, for them, they were critical of the forms of painting that had been established in the 19th century because they were just following models. They were just following conventions. And they wanted to be able to, what is vision really like? It's a way to look at those paintings and see that they're really trying to see what is vision really like when we cut through the conventions. It's a lot of what we do in our, in our meditation practice. And again, so there's that sense that we're not seeing things clearly, that we're in what could be called sometimes a dreamlike state. In some uh, parts of the Buddhist tradition, this is talked about as suggesting that our normal way of seeing and going about things has an illusory aspect to it. We're caught in a kind of bubble of... Um, of uh, not seeing clearly. And I mentioned uh, the last times how in some ways 
this understanding is actually supported by contemporary science. You look at cognitive science and there's a very clear sense that actually it would be not so accurate to say we see things as they are, but rather we see everything through our representations, our models, our metaphors, our concepts. And cognitive science say that, uh, first of all, you may remember from last time, they say that uh, uh, we're thinking a lot. 98% of our thinking is unconscious. And it's mostly structured through all sorts of metaphors, models, and concepts of which we're hardly aware that frame it. And, and when, we, uh, when we look more carefully, and some of that can occur in meditation, uh, we can see that. And so the, the series of talks I'm giving is pointing out five different ways that things are not as they appear. And I'm moving from the more easy to see ways that things are not as they appear, what we might call the more gross ways, uh, gross meaning uh, larger scale, easier to see, to the more subtle ways that things are not as they appear. And today, we're moving from the gross into the subtle. I, I can't say the word gross without thinking that when I was a kid, gross meant something else. <laughs> Maybe it still does, I don't know. So, but anyway, it means moving from the uh, more obvious to the less obvious. Um, so those five ways are these, and we'll be, I'll briefly review the first two, and then we'll go into the third. The first is, we see through the lens of the personal self, often in a distorted way. And that probably is not hard to see, and again, I'll go into that very briefly. The second is, which we covered last time in some depth, we see through the lens of the cultural or collective conditioning that we receive. Again, not so hard to see. In other words, we, we are in many ways uh, structured and dominated by our social conditioning on, in all sorts of ways, you know, in a hundred different ways. And we can notice that when we go to other cultures that they look at things differently. Right, in some areas. Right? The third, which we'll look at today, is that we see permanence and solidity where there is actually impermanence and a lack of solidity to things. That's what we'll explore in more depth today and goes along with the meditations that we explored. The fourth, and we're getting into more subtle dimensions here, the fourth is that we see distinct what seem to be distinct and separate individual things and beings, human beings, other beings, where in actuality, beings are not really independent and separate, but there's more of a sense of interdependence. And the last one is that we see a separation between ourselves and everything else, other things and other beings, where in actuality, there's non-separation. We're certainly not uh, the separation that we presume. Again, that's, it's going from the more easy to see to the harder to see. 
and we're in a we're in an intermediate place where we'll be exploring um, impermanence and the way that we don't see impermanence clearly. And some aspects of that are pretty easy to see, and some things are harder to see. For for the latter, for the ones that's harder to see, this is where uh, sustained meditative practice makes a big difference. There are other ways we can get there, but the main vehicle in our approach here, the tradition, is to use meditation to see very deeply into impermanence. So a little bit about the first two, just as a review, um, that... Uh, the first example, again, not so hard to see. We see through the lens of the personal self in ways that are often distorting. We've had a number of examples that people have given the last two times. Um, you know, I gave I gave uh, examples of uh, you know uh, being in stop and go traffic, seeing someone coming down the, the breakdown lane, and going right away to the thought that person is so selfish and then going into somewhat of a sustained reflection about how the society is getting more and more selfish. Blah, blah, blah. Right? And, and, so, uh, and then later, uh, driving past that same car and, and noticing that that car had stopped to help uh, a motorist who had broken down. Right? And I think we have these kind of experiences uh, all the time, right? That we notice, that, oh, I'm, you know, really reactive. Another example I gave was when we have tendencies maybe to be hard on ourselves, we'll get 50 people saying how good something is we're doing and three saying how we're not doing such a good job and we'll instantly zap into the the three, right? If we tend to be hard on ourselves. That's, you know, so we're not really seeing clearly by focusing in that way. And let me ask for one or two more examples. Again, we'll use the microphones, so if we can have our helpers. Uh, anyone have an example that you might have seen in the last week or that you maybe comes to mind right now? So we'll have one at the back. We'll just have maybe two examples here. I uh, teach mindfulness to kids out in the Bayview in San Francisco, and there was one little boy who just didn't, seemed to get it you know he would he was five and he would throw things and he would swear swear and uh leave the classroom and but occasionally he'd sit with us and do some of the exercises and I just thought well you know you can't reach everyone and then uh about um six months later his mother uh and in my head I'm thinking yeah terrible teacher I should reach everyone. What's wrong with me? Right. And then six months later, his mom emailed me. She had moved him to another school. And she said, "Um, my boy really loved mindfulness. Can you come to my school? (laughs) Right. 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 And anyone else, probably others have had similar, as someone who's taught for a long time, I certainly have experiences like that where I thought, I'm sure... It's not working, and then six months later, someone says, "Oh, it's the most meaningful experience, right?" Right. So, please, yeah. This isn't my story. It's from the moth, and I'll be brief about it. But it really resonated with me. A woman was at the airport and bought a bag of chips and put it between her and another chair, and a man sat next to her, and he kept helping himself to the chips, and she just kept getting so angry. And then he'd wait for her to take one, and um, she was getting more and more angry. And finally, she got up to get on the plane in a huff, grabbed the chips, 
and then got on the plane and realized they were his chips. Hers were not opened and were in her bag. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that story. Yeah, that's, that's a great story. Maybe uh, just one last one here. Yeah, I, um, I went through a divorce a couple of years ago, so yeah. my kids are kind of stressed sometimes going back and forth between the homes. Yeah. Really loud, so... Um, a little closer? Oh, they're really loud at the house, yeah. so I bought those chimes, you know, that yeah. they hit. So I've been incorporating that, and st- I call it a timeout, and they hit the bell, and then they raise their hand. Yeah. Um, and now they're, they want to give me timeouts, and they're, they want more timeouts, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so is there a way that, if you could keep it, is there a way that you're, you weren't seeing clearly? Can you connect it to that at all? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't able to even track what was going on in their classrooms because yeah. I was, you know, so dysregulated myself about a year ago. Yeah. Um, and now they're saying, uh, how come you're like our teacher? So I didn't even know that stuff was already going on in their classroom a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so just uh, for whatever reasons, not seeing actually what's happening. Yeah, thank you. So they're countless ways and the practice that I gave that first week was to invite people to track that. It's a beautiful practice and it's a little bit humbling and remember I I think I've emphasized that when we're doing these practices on noticing how things are not as they appear and we're not seeing clearly it's important to also not be too hard on oneself to do some uh, compassion practice or kindness practice if you're going into this a lot because it can be you can get a little down on yourself gosh I'm just in a haze, you know, in a self-imposed haze. Um, and so that's, that's important. But these are extremely common. And, um, you know, that we... It's not even so much that we see in a distorted way, but it's that we actually select out what to notice because of self. We notice some things, we don't notice others, right? The very, you know, and it's part of what humans do. And we actually have to do that because we can't notice everything. Right, so I think that what their psychologists say, they're actually, what, almost like uh, thousands and thousands of pieces of data that are there all the time, and we select out just a few of them, right? So that's going to come through the lens of self. So it's just, it's just part of it. And uh, the other side of that is we can, we can practice to see our own tendencies more clearly. So part of the motivation in having the assignment, as it were, to look at how your mind is filtering things or distorting things is to have a better sense of your own tendencies. And that can be a fruit of the practice and can be beneficial in all sorts of ways, right? You know, in terms of relationships, uh, um, any of one's endeavors and so forth. And um, it also, you know, another, another way that we can really uh, cultivate or another quality which gets cultivated when we see our own perspectives more is we can more deliberately take the perspectives of others, whether it's through listening, through deliberate empathy, let me hear it from that person's perspective, knowing that we hear, see, and do through the lens of self, we can deliberately take others' perspectives, which can be very, very uh, important and also be a counterweight. 
to, to that tendency. And many of us do that in many sorts of ways. The second aspect that we looked at is that we see through our social conditioning. You know, and there are so many ways that that manifests. And we could, you know, the most dramatic of them is that we see through the lens of uh, certain filters that tend to set us off from others. So we see through the lens of certain concepts of gender or race or age or sexual orientation. You know, we know, we know that, that we have all had conditioning, whoever we are, and we have to work through it, you know. And this is to get back to that area that we've explored a number of times that's called by the psychologist implicit bias. Many, how many of you are familiar with that term? So a number of you. That It's that way that we see through the lens of our conditioning, particularly that we are taught and come into it at a very young age that we form in-groups and out-groups. It could be around all of these uh, different dimensions. We form in-groups and out-groups and we tend to see the world in that way. We see someone who's not in my in-group, whatever it might be, and I tend to see them as other. I tend not to see them, you know, the research shows we don't see them as individuals. We see them as representatives of a group. That's the way our very perception works. And that implicit bias even goes against our stated political principles, right? That when there's a conflict between what we think we believe and our implicit bias, generally implicit bias always wins, which is sobering, right? You know, and, and yet uh, that can be worked with. You know, partly by seeing it, one of the most promising ways to work through that implicit bias comes with mindfulness. You know, and there's, there are people working to develop uh, trainings. The ones I'm aware of are particularly around race, which can really um, help to cut through one's own conditioning. So the conditioning is strong. You know, and I invited people to look for examples of that. Anyone want to, again, maybe to share one or two examples? We have one friend here. Okay. Um. I uh, was born and raised here in Marin County and have a very, you know, a left-wing upbringing. Um, very much, yeah. most of us seem to be like that out here. Yeah. And I have uh, had a tough time trying to have empathy or understanding of people on the far right yeah. and where they come from. And I recently read a book called Strangers in Their Own Land. Right. And uh, where the woman really tries to, what she calls, climb the empathy wall to really try to get a feel for what these people are feeling. And um, I, I try to be mindful and really try to be empathetic to people and try to really yeah. look at things from the other side. And it's very, very difficult. But uh, read, reading that book, it really did help me to sort of be able to see from their perspective. And as you said, looking at them as a big group of people rather than individuals. And when she started talking about this person and this person, yeah, and, you know, and you really kind of getting to know these people as human beings and not just as part of a group right. that I can't yeah. relate to. Yeah. Um, so that was... That's great. You know, there are a lot of important points there. I mean, one, 
you know, we want to do this. First, we want to notice our tendencies. Again, mindfulness can notice. Notice how your thinking develops. It could be, again, from on the basis of a political perspective. It could be around these other forms of social conditioning I was mentioning earlier. And so we first try to notice it. Again, uh, helpful to have compassion, some heart practice when we're noticing those thoughts, because some of it's painful. A lot of it's painful. And so to really hold all of this, so if it gets to feel like, it's getting to be a lot, then go to some heart practices, like metta, compassion practice. But you're making a lot of important points. One of them is that the the noticing is really important. And then uh, empathy plays a key role. Empathy in all of this plays a key role. Can I really understand someone, not just see them in some category or concept, which is usually connected with, in this case, with negativity, right? And can I really uh, open to the life story of the person, have empathy, see if I can take their perspective? So empathy in all of this plays a very key role to work through this. And I, I mentioned uh, last time how when I was a, a teacher for four years uh, in Kentucky, at the University of Kentucky, teaching ethics classes, and I had, we went into all the hot-button ethical issues, but I had as a basis for any discussion that we take the position of being interested in other people's views and listening. And for whatever reason, people accepted that. <laughs> Maybe because I had authority. <laughs> but they accepted that, and they really operated like that. So people who had very strong views on abortion got interested in other people's views. That didn't happen much, right? And so that's another, if you can set up a framework, that's probably a crucial way to deal with contemporary U.S., right? Can you, have, can you cultivate these places where people actively listen and are interested in others' views not simply for the purpose of shooting them down, so to speak. Right? Maybe uh, we have one, one more. Maybe someone who, who hasn't spoken. Uh, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hi. Um, it brings to mind we live in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and we live in a fairly residential street. Yeah. But when I'm walking down the street. I can feel the difference that I feel between what seems familiar or what seems unfamiliar, yeah. whether it's someone's face, a neighbor, someone yeah. I don't know, and how when something is unfamiliar, I bring a different emotional um, re- relationship to something unfamiliar. It becomes other, made me slightly nervous, maybe. Right. And I, when it's someone or something that's familiar, there's a kind of ease. Or yeah. Whatever. And so that kind of, you know, f- awareness of these two different worlds of what is familiar, what is unfamiliar. Right. That's great. Um, great noticing, really. It's that what you've described is at the heart, again, of what uh, the psychologists call implicit bias, which probably, you know, people speculate it may have originated back at a time when people were living in small groups. And it actually was really important to know who's in my group and who's in the group from the other side of the mountain because they might want to kill me, Right. And, you know, and we still have something like that conditioning. And so we have, okay, this is familiar, um, relax, right? Uh, can, you know, be friendly, give person the benefit of the doubt. Oh, this is unfamiliar, on edge a little bit, a little bit of anxiety, don't give the person the benefit of the doubt, right? We all do that. And so the noticing of it is really crucial. And some of it obviously 
makes a certain amount of sense from a survival basis, right? That's what I was saying. It has a origin, which is not simply crazy, right? But it still is there. Yeah. So again, the, the aim here is to really to um, identify those aspects of conditioning, be mindful exactly in the way that you did. You know, notice that when you go, when you, I don't know, you're at some social event and there are people you feel a little on edge with, notice it, study how your mind works. Not with the purposes of criticizing yourself, but for the purposes of learning. And then, so it's, you know, the practices, probably three practices here. First, investigate what's there in your own mind. Secondly, do proactive practices that cultivate empathy and dialogue with those with whom there are differences. So, uh, track, be mindful. Second, proactive practices. And then thirdly, hold everything with some degree of compassion. Very crucial. Yeah, yeah, experiment, um, good, good addition. Experiment, uh, you know, we want to experiment and explore where you basically have a, a sense of safety. You know, I'm not asking you to go into a really dangerous situation and say, let me track my implicit bias. <laughs> All right, thank you for that. Yeah. So, the third area, and maybe we can get back to your point in the discussion, because I... Yeah, maybe we'll come back to that, because for the purpose of time, I want to I get to impermanence before time is up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So impermanence comes and goes, and we want to give enough time for impermanence, right? Okay. Okay. So, um, so we looked at the practices in the guided meditation, and um, most of us know that looking into impermanence is traditionally a very fundamental part of Buddhist practice. And I'm presenting it as this third way, uh, as connected with this third way that we don't see clearly, that things are not as they appear. Namely, that we tend to take things as permanent or more permanent than they really are. And we don't, and we take them to be more solid as well. And we don't see so clearly impermanence and the lack of solidity of experience. And so this again has its more easy to see aspects, and it's harder to see aspects. And I'll talk about both of them, and I'll invite us to follow up with some of the practices like what we did earlier. And I'll, I'll try to finish so I have enough, we have some plenty of time for, for discussion. So again, traditionally, looking into impermanence is very fundamental. Many of us know that in the tradition, there actually are three areas that we're asked to look particularly carefully at. These are um, to look into impermanence first, to look into what's called dukkha, which is usually translated as suffering. I like to translate as reactivity. Look at how our minds get reactive, not liking or liking something and grasping onto it, how we grasp and how we reactively push away. And that's, 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 again, usually translated as suffering but experientially, it's closer to being reactive, you know, being, being compulsively reactive. And that we, um, we need to look into that. 
And the third area to look into is the nature of the self, and particularly what's called anatta, usually translated as not-self. The very nature of the self and how we take there to be a solid self when it's not as solid as we think. Right? Again, so you can see, start to see how all three of these are related. You know, that impermanence is connected with reactivity, which is connected with our sense of self. We've already looked at that to some extent uh, earlier. And seeing clearly into impermanence is taken to be really crucial for a number of reasons. First of all, it helps us to see more clearly. It's also important because it's taken that when we actually think that things are more permanent than they are, we tend to grasp more. And so you have passages from the Buddha where he said, look into impermanence and see it clearly and there will be less clinging and less grasping because we see that things are changing. You know, we see, oh, this ice cream cone will give me pleasure for a certain amount of time and then it will be gone and I may not have full and complete happiness even though that's what was promised, (laughs) at least in my own mind, right? And so part of the motivation for looking into permanence is that we'll basically take things a little easier, one way to say it, we'll grasp and cling less. And so that's really, really crucial. There, it's also when we look at impermanence on a gross level, the fact that we too are impermanent, it's taken as something that can give an urgency to our practice. I want to wake up because time is passing. What am I doing? Right? How am I using my time? And so contemplating impermanence, particularly at a more gross level, uh, is taken as important for that. And looking more deeply into impermanence is also a doorway to deeper practice. It's a major doorway. And that's, that's how I'm using it here in part to let us go into more subtle dimensions of our experience. And lastly, it's also a doorway to compassion. That when we look at impermanence really clearly and we see how we are caught in ways of seeing that are not so accurate, it can bring compassion for both self and others. And we can see that kind of, uh, that kind of clinging and compulsive grasping often. There's a line from a poem by Galway Cannell where he says, you cling to me, you cling to me hard as if clinging could save us. Right. Is that familiar? Yeah, we, we do that, don't we? Uh, whether it's a person, a relationship, a job, an idea, a concept. And so looking into impermanence is taken to be a way to, to help with that. And so we first do this, as we did in the brief meditation uh, in our earlier session, we can first do this looking at impermanence on a more gross level. You can take as a practice that you do five minutes a day Reflect on how everything is changing. Things that are public, things in your own life, you know, health goes up and down, this goes up and down, job goes up and down, relationship changes. Um, You can look at that. Uh, Politicians rise and fall. Success of sports teams rises and falls. With one exception, the local sports teams. (laughs) Okay, um, <laughs> and uh, and just to reflect on that, you know, uh, 
can be a very powerful form of practice. I once did that every day for two years. And it can be, it's very simple, and it can change, change you if you do it every day. It's done in some traditions as a regular practice. Uh, just to reflect on ordinary impermanence. Bring it to mind. And it's uh, suggested that one also bring to mind that I too am impermanent. That each of us is also impermanent. It's not just, everything else is impermanent, but I'm the observer of all of it. And I'm not included. <laughs> right? But I too am impermanent. So that's one practice that can really uh, be helpful. <clears throat> uh, from the Thai teacher Achan Cha, he said, not seeing impermanence or wanting it different is like asking a river to back up, boxing a tree and hoping to win. <laughs> or going to a duck and asking, why aren't you a chicken? That's, the <laughs> That's from the uh, 20th century Thai teacher Achan Cha. <clears throat> You know, and uh, we know that the Buddha, <clears throat> when he actually saw more clearly <clears throat> aging <clears throat> and death and dying was a turning point in his life. He had been protected from seeing that. When he actually saw the signs of impermanence, it raised in him deep questions. How should I live my life? He was brought up with comfort and protected from all the signs of change. This is from the psalm, uh, from the Jewish Bible, the Psalms. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So seeing into impermanence, again, connected with seeing clearly and wisdom. So we can work in that more gross level. We can also see impermanence as we were doing in the meditative practices that I guided. We can also start to see impermanence at a more experiential level. And the pointing is that when we look deeply at impermanence in our meditations in an experiential way, we see that things are changing far more quickly than we might have thought. I gave the analogy last time, I think, that it's something like our experience. We tend to uh, make our experience uh, look like things are whole, solid. And, you know, much like uh, we have the experience in films, when films are 24 frames a second, of not seeing the frames. It creates the illusion that things are flowing and solid. And our vision actually does something similar. I talked about some of the psychology of that. There's that phenomenon called flicker fusion, where things are actually flickering, but we bring things together in our perception. And part of what we do in meditation is we go against some of those tendencies which are very linked with concepts and having our perception become conceptualized. In our meditation, we have the capacity to deconceptualize perception. And we start to see it as more flickering. It's very interesting. It can be a little disorienting. So always good to do compassion practice. So that's why I would say, when in doubt, compassion practice. <laughs> Difficult moment, compassion practice or some kind of heart practice that opens your heart a little bit. But we can start to see when we meditate that things, especially when the concepts start to fall away, when we're not so guided in our experience by our concepts and our thinking, we can start to see things more 
as not lasting so long, even as flickering. And we start to see an experience in a different way. The meditations which I gave you are ways to open that up. That is, we can just work with one sense at a time, work with sound, and just stay with sound. Do that for five minutes or ten minutes. Just stay with body sensations. It helps a lot if we can also be, have a regular practice and be developing concentration. Part of the reason we don't see the flickering is because we live a good part of our lives dominated by concepts and thinking. When we have meditative training, we can start to cut through that. We can still use thinking when it's necessary, when it's important, which it is a lot of the time, but we're not dominated by it in the same way. And we can actually have the capacity to have the mind be quiet and still at will and then open to experience and study it and see the more constructed nature of experience, which can be very, very helpful and opens us up to be able to see impermanence more clearly, to see in a more subtle way. It also opens us up to a lot of other dimensions of our experience. But we can do that through, you know, the starting practices would be to reflect on gross impermanence, to reflect, not to reflect, but to work with sound. Very, very, go, go sit somewhere where there's a lot of sounds. Watch it just coming and going. You could do that possibly with music, especially if the music doesn't have a lot of obvious meaning. So not with words, but maybe someone just playing a solo flute or something and just stay with the sounds. That could be a way of training. I used to sit next to a creek and just listen to the creek for hours on end. Very, very sweet. <laughs> you can do that. You know, you can be, uh, be with the rain at least for a few days. <laughs> you know, something like that. So you can be with sound. You can be with the sensations of the body. See if you can be with sensations. Again, in all this, we both try to stay with the phenomena and we watch the mind when it's liking something, not liking something, making a comment, going off on some train of thought, which will happen, of course. And we just track that. And we, the training is to come more and more just to be with the flow of experience. We can do that with sensations. Harder, as we saw, may have seen, is to do that with thinking. Can I just be with the impermanent flow of thinking? And sometimes we, one way to do this is just to when you're, first of all, spend some of your time just getting a little more stable in your mind and then just say, let me just sit back and watch for any thoughts that occur. And you can, sometimes you can name them. Just watch them. Watch them come and go. It's very, very interesting to do that. Just because where do they come from? They just sort of bubble up, right? Sit there. Okay. Some thought comes from what happened an hour ago for what you know what shall i have for lunch or you know what about tonight or whatever we just we just track that watch it come and go like that and then uh, the fourth practice that i did was to bring it all together bring it all together this is still in meditative practice typically with eyes closed and watch all the dimensions of experience with eyes closed just watch things coming and going we call this again sometimes choiceless awareness where we just let whatever is predominant be there without trying to do anything and let things just come and go as they are. If you're doing that and you get overly distracted, just come back to the breath for a while. Okay, you can do that. But it's a, this is a training 
to notice impermanence. And again, it can be really interesting. And so that dimension of interest and even a little excitement. Oh, God, this is so cool. You know, just tell yourself that. And you can, can explore that and that helps. The dimension of interest in meditation is very significant. It really, really helps. It's not like, oh, I'm just sitting to do my meditation again. Nah. Does that ever happen to anyone? <laughs> or it's just my duty to meditate, right? But can you actually have that interest? Oh, gosh, what am I going to find? Oh, interesting, you know? That's, that really helps. Uh, that helps the meditation a lot. And I didn't mention doing this with your eyes open. That's harder. That's more advanced practice because the eyes trigger concepts really quickly, right? And they trigger conceptual thinking really quickly. You can try doing that. I didn't do it in this meditation. Eventually you can do that and have, you know, maybe sometimes if you've done a retreat or done a lot of meditation and you open your eyes and suddenly you see a tree without a lot of labeling or you watch the sunset and it's just colors and forms. I think we've probably all had those experiences it's harder with the eyes, harder with vision, because the vision quick, so quickly goes into concepts. But for some of us, we might have more ease in that. So you can try that. So those are some practices to explore this. And as we do that, we can come to see the ways that more than we may have thought, our experience is constructed. We see through concepts, we see through habits, we see through tendencies, and we don't always see so clearly that flow of experience. Right? And so it's a very, it's a very, very interesting uh, practice. It looks like I'm not going to get to my hand up. Maybe you can, I can deal with it later. I forgot about it. Sorry. <laughs> and so uh, maybe just to end uh, by by saying a few things. One of them is again. When you do this practice and you see the extent to which um, experience is more constructed than we thought, it can be a little bit disorienting at times. So again, what I'm suggesting is bring in compassion practice and if necessary, talk with a teacher. Talk with someone who can bring it, bring it back next week. You know, that it's sometimes because we're, we're seeing, and it's a little bit like the disorientation that can be there with culture shock. You come back from being in a different culture. It can be a little bit weird, right, to be in my culture, you know. Um, that can happen. We probably, many of us know that. So just to know that it can feel a little bit disorienting at times. That comes with the territory. And that, but to bring in compassion and, if necessary, uh, talk with a teacher. So I think I'll end with a quotation about the importance of um, looking at impermanence and invite you if you wish to do some of these practices with impermanence in the next week and come back and tell your stories, okay? Um, so here's my final quotation. This is two quotations from uh, uh, traditional Buddhist teachers. Uh, one teacher who is from Tibet, the 16th Karmapa, who is a great teacher who, who I once met, um, he uh, was invited to have lunch in the U.S. Congress. Being busy people, um, without that much time to meditate, the congressman asked him, if you could summarize the teachings of the Buddha in one sentence, <laughs> how would you do that? His answer was, everything 
changes. Okay. Now, I don't know if the U.S. Congress followed that up with the kind of meditations that I've suggested, but um, possibly some of them did. There is a, I know I, I met, uh, you know, some of you may have met Tim Ryan, who's a congressman from Ohio, who wrote a book on, on politics and mindfulness, right? So there are some. There is a mindfulness group at the U.S. Congress. Okay. okay. Um, but anyway, that's, that's a sidebar. Okay, second story from uh, the Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi, originally from Japan. A student asked him. People were wanting to get things uh, quickly without doing too much reading or study. So someone asked Suzuki Roshi, could you put the entire message of Buddhism in a nutshell? Uh, he answered, guess what? Everything changes. <laughs> Same exact answer. Right? And um, so it's right at the center of things. It's both obvious and it's not obvious. And my invitation would be that you, uh, uh, in the next week, uh, study it further. Let me invite you just to pause. And how many of you would like to look further into impermanence in the next week in some way or other? Okay. So just take a moment and see how are you going to do that? What's going to help you in particular do that tomorrow? What's going to help me actually get it going? Just think to yourself. So we have some time if there are any uh, comments or questions and we can, we can give room if you'd like for your, your point. Oh, just with me? Okay, that'd be fine. We can do that after, after we finish. Great. I just, I just wanted to comment because I'm looking that way. If you look out that window, that's exactly the essence of this talk today. <laughs> it's constantly changing. Yeah. And it goes back and forth and twists around. Yeah. So that's what it is. That's why I love nature. Right. So that would be that would be a very helpful way of practicing. Again, we're we're pointing to both more obvious dimensions of impermanence, like like looking outside now, and and more subtle aspects of impermanence. And both are really crucial to investigate. So we could actually just uh you know, there's wind, there's rain, just to sit and observe the phenomena would be a way of practicing that could be very valuable. Again, I, I think I mentioned I used to just sit by a creek and listen to the sounds, right? Something very, not hard, but when you keep doing it, something sinks in. Yeah. Okay, so you'll be in the middle, you'll be next. Okay. Um, while you were giving this um, Dhamma talk, I kept the, the um, lyrics from a Jimmy Buffett song kept coming through my mind. Yeah. And it's probably for the boomers, remember this, as changes in latitude, changes in attitude, nothing remains quite the same. Through all of my running and all of my cunning, if we didn't laugh, we'd all go insane. <laughs> wow. Ta-da. Can you say that one more time? That was, that was nice. You okay to say that one more time? <laughs> okay. Changes in latitude, changes in attitude, nothing remains quite the same. 
through all of my cunning and all of my running, if we didn't laugh, we would all go insane. Right, right. So, again, laughter gets close to that element of compassion also. There's some, some yeah. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just, this talk really resonated with me because yesterday I was going back through my journal over the past several months, and I have a nine-month-old, and um, the first, like, three months of having a baby, I mean, there's so many changes, but also, like, I wasn't able, because of lack of sleep and just being in it, to see the impermanence in it. And right. I was writing as if my newborn was going to be a newborn forever, and then right. I was never going to sleep again. And it was just, um, and just going back through it, you know, it just felt, I really felt that sense. And, you know, as far as a practice, I mean, yeah. watching kids, but babies in particular, right. like impermanence really, they embody it. Um, That's great. Yeah, a lot of good points there. One is just the noticing of the impermanence. Then the other is um, noticing how when things maybe get unpleasant, we think that impermanence isn't really true. And so it's sometimes said that we like impermanence when things are unpleasant, and we don't like impermanence when things are pleasant. <laughs> impermanence just keeps happening anyway. <laughs> okay. okay. So we have one in the middle and then one on and two on the side. Yeah. And we'll go next to this to the side. I was thinking about a little closer, do you mind? Oh, I was thinking about times in my life, you know, when I get satisfaction, and it's wonderful, and then all of a sudden, dissatisfaction shows up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can. <laughs> uh, how many people know what she means? <laughs> I do. Yeah, thank you. I know you can relate to that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we have two over here. Yeah, it's a great point that that um, um, we something wonderful happens and we naturally tend to cling to it as if we could keep it happening forever. And we find that that may work for a while, but not for too long. <laughs> Yeah. I think it's easy when um, when things are tumultuous and changing, obviously, yeah. that it's easiest to unmoor oneself and just let yourself go. I think yeah. the hardest thing is when things are stable, not to gradually get un, uh, to get attached to permanence. But I was thinking years yeah. ago, I was here with you. Oh, yeah. Um, when you talked about kayaking as a metaphor for Zen practice. Yeah. And how you gave me something for my whole life when I hit those moments when things come unmoored. Yeah. And I realize I'm in tumultuous change. And I always use your metaphor for kayaking in how not to get, um, to just watch and kind of go with what's happening. And that's helped me so many times yeah. throughout these, last, what, 10, 15 years, I think well, it's been. And I always say, oh, this is where I need to get in the kayak. Yeah. With Donald. <laughs> so yeah. thank you. 
Yeah, um, thank you. Um, so just a few thoughts on that. One is that the, um, in difficult times, different tools we can use. One of them is to reflect that it's impermanent. That's, that's, that's one tool which can be helpful. Sometimes that may not help too much, but, but it's not going to hurt. Um, and then the, uh, the kayaking metaphors actually came from a student of mine. And, um, and we were studying a traditional teaching called the four ways of, something like four ways of skillful effort, which traditionally were framed as, um, um, let's see, try to avoid really negative uh, mind states. Or you know, don't try to don't encourage them, and then know what to do if you if the really difficult states of mind, body, and heart come up, and then I think thirdly it was to uh, develop good habits, and fourth keep them going. So it's pretty straightforward, and I think my student translated it into kayaking guidelines. Um, try to stay out of trouble. <laughs> know what to do. That's number one. Number two know what to do if you get in trouble, um, develop good kayaking skills, and keep practicing them, number four. So very straightforward, right? But um, that's, that would be a part of our training, whether it's kayaking or just working with our own mind or body or heart. So thanks. Yeah. Hi. Hi. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about my relationship to impermanence as it relates to gratitude practice. Yeah. And how uh, some examples that were coming to mind were, you know, my when I'm engaged in practice is, you know, my children are safe today. Yeah. You know, my mother is still alive. Yeah. Um, my relationship to mindfulness, you know, and my gratitude around noticing, yeah. you know, that my relationship to meta practice may have deepened. Yeah. Or that I may have let go of something, an aspect of practice Mm -hmm. that's been powerful and important for me in Mm -hmm. the past, and to notice the change with that. So gratitude practice really allows me to deepen into understanding with impermanence. Yeah, that's great, uh, really, to... um, It's it's really that... That's what I've been pointing to by mentioning compassion, but it's to bring in the heart element... In some ways, the looking and seeing more clearly with impermanence is a wisdom practice, really crucial to bring in the heart practice. And one way, beautiful way to do it is, as you've said, with cultivating gratitude, where we actually realize this is here now, this is happening now. I'm really grateful. I know that it won't last, right? But it's here right now, and I can enjoy it. And so it's really like, a, in that way, it's an integration of wisdom, and we might say the the heart or the wise heart, and you know I'm I'm suggesting that there are different ways to do that, but that's a beautiful way to do that. Yeah, maybe that's a nice way to to finish. So let me just end with we'll just end again with a, a brief reflection. Again, take whatever's been helpful from the morning, bring it to mind, and see what your intention is, again, coming out of the morning. Maybe, again, to go back to 
how you'll continue this investigation in the next week. Just take a little time for that reflection and coming back to intention. Then we close with a traditional brief practice. We acknowledge that we explore impermanence. We do these various practices very much for our own benefit, but it's also for the benefit of others, those in our own near circles, our circles of family and friends and work and community but that ultimately the vision is, is big. We also practice for the benefit of other beings, ultimately all beings, knowing also that we are part of this large, large community of all beings present at this time. So to be continued and the attention to impermanence in a big way will be impermanent. So now's the time and have gratitude for it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.